Psalm 62, David, it says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. David speaks of waiting in silence for God. There is something about sitting still with God that communicates to him by our actions that we trust him. There, it is so often easy to try to fix things and figure things out, and there's, that's fine. But there's times when we need to just sit and remember that Jesus walks among his church, as the book of Revelation tells us, and so he's here with us. So I just want to take a minute and just, if you can, just take anything that you've come here with and just take a minute and be quiet and just fix your attention on the one who is here. Hmm. Father, thank you. So, a few days ago, I went on a walk with my son, and on our way, uh, yeah, you're good, man, uh, we noticed that, or he noticed that the trash cans had not been brought in yet. So he proceeded to eagerly try to grab the big trash can that's probably three times his size, it's my four-year-old. And I saw him doing that, and I thought, you know, I could offer to help, or I could let him see what happens. And he began to try to grab it, and sure enough, he, let's just say he he urged me to help him. Uh, so I reached down, grabbed the trash can, and helped him bring it in. Um, and I just, I saw that, and I, and I just think that that's such a, such a beautiful picture, actually, of what we're going to look at today, um, that there are things in our lives, uh, even garbage, sorry, um, that God helps us deal with. There are things that are too heavy for us to lift, to move. And when we come to that place, it is easy and even natural, unfortunately, to try to figure it out on our own. But God wants to train us all. I know he's continually training me to turn to him and make it a practice of our lives to turn to him when we face things that are impossible. Because if there's stuff that's impossible, it is for sure that it has been allowed by God. It's an opportunity to come to him, to say, I need your help. I just can't do this. I have no strategy. I just need you. Acts chapter 12. We're actually going to back up um, to the end of chapter 11 because that's kind of where the story starts and we need to see that first. So chapter 11, verses 27 through 30 say this. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Getting some feedback here. Are these other mics on still, or by chance? Okay. Yeah, I'm hearing something. Mike, do you know how to kill some of this? 
Um, verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is the backdrop to what we're going to look at today. Um, but before we get into that, just a quick overview of a pattern that you see in the book of Acts. So from chapters 2 all the way through 11 that we just read from, there's this pattern of God's kingdom expanding and then being opposed by the forces of evil. So chapters 2 and 3, we see the, the, the coming of the Spirit and the expansion of the kingdom of God, really explosive growth, growth of the church. And then there's this opposition that comes in chapter 4, where um, the, Peter and John are brought before the council. Um, they end up being released, and then the church expands. There's, there's this, this pattern of opposition and expansion, opposition, expansion. Chapters 7 and 8, persecution comes. Stephen is stoned. Um, Paul persecutes the church, chapter 8, and then Paul, or Saul is converted uh, in chapter 9. And we see the, the gospel going to the Gentiles. So there's this period of expansion of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, that we're right in the middle of here. And so that's kind of the, the, the backdrop that we're looking at. And God's work is being done. Um, the power of the Spirit of God is working through more and more people. People are loving one another, as we see here in these verses that there was a time where a famine was coming and no one knew it was coming. But God, through prophets, told them that there was this famine coming. And so these prophets literally travel um, 300 miles uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch, which is the setting of chapter 12, where we are, um, to share this prophecy from God. And God, in his love, lets his people know that there is a need that's coming but it's interesting because it hadn't even come yet. And yet, what's the response of the church? In verse 29, it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So these Christians, they, they respond out of love for their, their fellow brothers in a church that was 300 miles away. The prophecy didn't say provide for one another. It just said there's a need. And their hearts responded because Christ had loved them. They were motivated to love one another. This was not to be confused with socialism, which is forced. This was free will sharing, free will generosity by choice, a response to the love of God that he had shown them for the period from the point they got saved, even through this prophecy as well. Um, so it's interesting to note when this provision came to these individuals. Were they looking, did they know there was a need? Number one, no. Were they looking for provision? No. As I just pointed out, the, the pattern of the book of Acts is people are getting saved. The gospel is going out. People are loving one another. The church is being the church. They are, as Matthew 6.33 says, they were seeking first the kingdom of God. And God's promise is when you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. They didn't seek this provision. They were seeking God. And in the middle of it, God just takes care of them. 
I, I can count probably on one hand, unless my memory fails me, how many times that I have prayed um, in, in my adult life for, for God to provide. Um, because there's, there's been times where I've been tempted to say, God, I'm worried. I, I don't know if you're going to provide here in this case, but, but I have just seen him be so faithful. And this, this verse just plays out, has played out in, in our lives, and I know many of yours lives, you've seen it. Whereas we just seek God and pursue him, there's nothing, ask, nothing wrong with asking for him to provide for us. But this is a father-son, father-daughter relationship that we are in with our father. And, and what child is a father not going to take care of? It's easy to, to focus on the gift and not the giver, but, but God says, I'm going to take care of you. You seek first my kingdom. He doesn't say in what quantity. He doesn't even say when, but he says, I will take care of you. I will meet your needs. And that's what he's doing here for this church. And so um, it's really a picture um, of them depending on God. They are in great dependence upon him. And when they see this need, we're going to give. We're just going to share. And when we give and we're generous to those in need, when we see that need, um, it really is an act of faith. We're saying, God, I'm not relying upon my finances. I'm relying upon you to take care of me. You've told me to share. You've put this in my heart to give. I'm, I'm going to do it. I see someone in need. Um, in, in James, um, it basically says that, uh, what, it, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's really interesting that James actually uses the analogy of, of sharing what we have with others as the analogy of, of walking out our faith. Um, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave his son. God is a generous God. And so he came to us who were poor and needy. While we were helpless, Romans 5 says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave to us when we had nothing to give to him, when we had nothing to offer him and still have nothing to offer him. He says, I'm going to continue to take care of you. I'm going to continue to provide for your practical needs. So these believers in Jerusalem, they listened to what the Spirit had told them to do, and they, and they did it. Um, and it's, it's nothing less than astounding what the believers in Antioch did because, again, they were responding to a need that didn't even exist yet. I, I, I've never, I can say that I've never done this in my walk with the Lord. I've never responded to a need that I didn't know about, that God just said, this is going to happen and you're going to respond to it and, and, and help those in need. But these believers had so much faith and trust in God that before it even happened, they were already making steps um, to provide, to send relief to the brothers. And it says that in verse 30, they send Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. These guys were, were leaders in the church, and this was not below them. They, chapter 6, it made it very clear that they needed to focus on devoting themselves to the word and prayer, but this was not below them. Going and giving and sharing and, and taking that 300-mile journey uh, on foot which would have taken about two weeks. And then they came back after that, as we'll see in this passage. They, they, they were compelled with love uh, for, their, for their brothers and their sisters. 
So the church, even though distributed in different areas, they've been showing and sharing the love of Jesus. And as they did, the kingdom continued to expand. When we do that, people see Jesus and, and they're attracted to that. More Gentile disciples are being made. The church is healthy. It's growing. And then something happens. Verse 1, chapter 11. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So when the genuine love of Christ becomes the norm, opposition from the enemy also becomes the norm. You can bank on it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Not to be confused with being persecuted for being stupid, but I've, I've done a lot of that in my life. No, when we, when we stand up for the Lord, when we share the truth, when we love people, the enemy gets stirred up. He gets angry. And he tries every creative tactic that he can, tactic that he can to stop that. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And he's using Herod, this evil man who wants nothing to do with God, to try to crush the gospel, to try to kill his children, his people. In John 13, 34, it says, By this, you guys know the verse, by this, will all people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So when we love one another as Christians, what happens? Jesus is seen. When we love people like Jesus loved us, people see Jesus in us. And that, more than anything, the enemy wants to stop. He does not look kindly upon that. Do you know that whether we like it or not, like it or not, Christian or non-Christian, we have all been born into a battle? Like it or not, we are in a battle. And it's, it's all too often that we forget that. I know I forget that sometimes. And I go, whoa, I just got knocked over. And I get surprised. And it's because I didn't put my armor on. I forgot that I'm in a battle. Sometimes it feels more in this culture like we're... we're uh, being entertained or at a movie or something like that, but we're not, like, you know, we're at a party. No, we're, we're in a battle. There is a real battle that's happening every day, and it intensifies. The more we walk with God, the more we want to serve Him, the more we desire His kingdom to expand, the more the attack comes. So, sure enough, there's persecution, there's killing. James has been killed with a sword, and Herod, it says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he went and got Peter and imprisoned him. This is Herod 
uh, Agrippa, which is the nephew of Herod Antipas. There are different Herods in the Bible. You probably know that. Um, Herod Antipas was the same Herod who killed John the Baptist, if you recall, for the same reason, popularity. He did what was popular. Remember, he was having that party, um, and he promised this woman who pleased him that he would give her whatever she wanted, and she said, I want John, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he's like, well, I got to do what's popular. And so he had Jan, John executed. And this is his, uh, Herod Agrippa, this is his nephew. So this is, this is like a, a thing in this family where they, they are narcissistic, they care only about themselves, and they will do whatever it takes to increase their, pow- their power, their control, um, and, and that's what we're dealing with here. Even to kill, he, he does not care. He has no regard for anyone but himself. So here are these Christians are. They are, it's said that the Jews, when, when Herod saw that the Jews were pleased with the death of James, that's when he got Peter. So the Jews are against the Christians at this point. Herod is against the Christians, which represents Rome. So imagine for a minute, you have no country to call your own. No country means no military, no defenses, no financial support, no social programs, and nothing but enemies around you. That is the situation that these believers were in. And not to mention that they were, they were coming off the heels of Stephen being persecuted. James had just been killed. And wave after wave of persecution that continued to intensify. How would you feel if that were you, if that were me? If we didn't live in a country that had a military, if we had no country to call our own, no defenses, that is the place that these believers were in. What did they do in response to this? Even though they were being tested and up against an opponent that was stronger than them, they did not sit. They fought back. So uh, are you ready for the battle plan, the strategy? It's in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but, but what? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's right, no strategy. God was their strategy. Desperate dependency expressed through prayer. Desperate dependency on God expressed through prayer. They had no strategy. They had no defense. They had no one but God and each other. And so they were up against an opponent. There was no way they were going to win. So they came to God. And they were looking out for their brother in prayer. In fact, I wonder if Paul had this crisis in mind when he wrote in Ephesians 6, 18, which is the spiritual warfare passage, by the way, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So this is what they're doing. They're making supplication. They're presenting prayers to God for their brother, Peter. And so Paul was a part of all this. And, and I, like I said, I can't help wonder if that's possibly what was in his mind, this event, when he wrote Ephesians 6.18. But these believers not only prayed when they faced defeat, but also on the heels of victory. 
This is very interesting. So if you look at Acts chapter 4, um, they were before the council, Peter and John, and they were released. They, it says, verse, uh, verse 23, Acts chapter 4, when they were released, they went to their friends, giving testimony of what God had done, and reported that the, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the prophets plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, quoting from Psalms. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, do you think uh, God was pleased with that prayer? He shook the room, and then he answered their prayer, gave them boldness, and following passages, they continued to heal, and miracles were performed. So, he answered their prayers. By the way, on a side note, 100% of the prayers that the believers had prayed in the book of Acts have been answered, by the way, side note. But it wasn't just prayers that they prayed that 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 are just recorded. It says they continually made a practice of this. And you would think that on the heels of this most recent intensified persecution, that they would be weaker than ever, that they would want to withdraw. I mean, obviously the enemy is trying to intimidate them. But in fact, they had made a practice of praying even in good times. Even when the victories came, they prayed. Even before the Holy Spirit came, it said they were all together praying. So this was a practice of the early church. And in this situation, they realized that God was their first and only option. And when you do that, you're going to pray like it. How did they come to realize that? That's the question I have. If we look back at the track record of these believers, and I want you to see this, in a word, it was because of practice. They had practiced prayer all the time, not just when they were in the middle of a crisis. It didn't just happen that they practice prayer. No more than uh, getting fit and healthy just happens, right? I have to go to the gym. I have to work out. You need to do more of that, by the way. The holidays, not good. Um, so these people, um, it wasn't an afterthought. It was, it was like their, their knee-jerk reaction. Quickly, you see it. They just prayed right away. When you depend on God in times of peace, he's going to be your go-to in times of war. If you're depending on anything other than God in your downtime, then when things get hard, you and I will always fail and fall. I want to read from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. These believers did not fight back in the same way that Herod fought. They didn't get out their swords. They fought in the way that Jesus taught them to fight. Peter was the one, right, who cut off uh, the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus said, that's, that's not the way we fight. I want to point out something from Ephesians 6. It says, finally be strong in the Lord. The Lord is our strength. But it says something, it says, put on the whole armor of God. That word put on means to sink into. I get this picture of like David, right? Little David trying to sink into Saul's armor. It didn't fit. When we try to fight on our own, it just doesn't fit. We weren't made to fight on our own. When we face opponents that are stronger than us, when we face the enemy, we cannot fight on our own. We will not win. But it says, put on or sink into the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So if we don't put on the armor, what will happen? We won't stand, we'll fall. And then it says later in that passage, it says, take up the whole armor of God. It's a different word. The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or oppose in the evil day. Okay, so it's this picture of if the battle comes, right? Imagine you're in the middle of a battle. The, the, the bullets are flying, and I'm out on the, on the battlefield. And I'm like, oh, you know what? It's time to put on my armor during the battle. Is that going to work? It will not work. I'm going to get blown apart. If I don't have my armor on before the battle, I'm not going to stand. That's why he says, sink into your armor beforehand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand and then so you can take up the armor to oppose the, in the evil day. If I don't have the armor of God, I'm going to just, I'm going to give up. These believers had practiced prayer when it was easy, when it was comfortable, when it was convenient to not pray. And that's why they reacted the way that they did. So um, as the church is praying for Peter, things were not looking too good for him, for Peter. Peter, uh, as we'll see here in verse 6, it says, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter was wanted dead by the government and the religious leaders of the day. He was in a maximum security prison. Prison. He was secured by not one but two chains. He was guarded 24-7 by four squads of trained Roman soldiers, two of which were bunking with him. <laughs> um, I was thinking of an old SNL skit, but I won't go there. Matt Foley, sorry, I'll stop. Um, on the eve of his show trial, basically, and possibly his execution, this is the state Peter's in. And what is Peter doing on the eve of his trial and possibly execution? 
He's sleeping. He said, you know what? It's time to catch up on my sleep. I'm going to die tomorrow. <laughs> All I know is I, I have uh, been kept awake at night for much less than that. I don't know about you, but Peter was sleeping. How much, I, I just wonder, how would Peter have such peace in a situation like this that would have otherwise been filled with such anxiety and worry? And I think it's because he had a model. Does this sound familiar? Matthew chapter 8 says, and when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But what was Jesus doing? He was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This was the same Jesus who was actually with Peter in this prison. And he knew he was with him. And he had seen his master sleep in a storm. Whereas Peter previously was freaked out in the storm. But he had seen his master do this and he knew his master was with him. And so in the middle of this dark prison, Peter is sleeping, knowing that the light of God is with him. His light in his darkness and even though he fully expected to die, as is clear from the following verses, we see that he was, he was sleeping. Um, in verse chapter 7, it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. If this is the same angel, you'll see later in the passage, he really likes hitting people. Um, he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I just, this is kind of humorous. I mean, Peter clearly didn't have the, the wherewithal in this moment to just put his clothes and his shoes on. I mean, he was probably disoriented. He didn't realize what was even happening. So the angel's like, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to tell you, you know, you need to get, put some clothes on. It would look kind of funny if you didn't put them on. You might be cold, you know, those sort of things. So just practically helping him out here. Uh, verse 9, and he went out and followed him. Peter followed the angel. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So the enemy comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. And that is Herod's intent here, motivated by Satan to kill and steal and destroy the church. Then something changed. God answered these believers' prayers. 
In Peter's words, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So one thing was going to happen. Peter even expected to die. The Jewish people expected him to die. And yet God's people were praying. So God took, he turned around a situation that was completely impossible. Peter was chained. He was guarded. He was in a maximum security prison by the Roman government. No way of getting out. And through simply praying, prayer from mere people in an impossible situation, the plans of an evil man were literally reversed. It's amazing. The Almighty turns satanic opposition into an opportunity for divine deliverance and for God's glory. There's a, a story, as recounted by F.F. F. Bruce, he's a biblical scholar, he writes commentaries, an amazing man. Um, he wrote about a missionary, uh, an Indian missionary uh, named Sundar Singh. He lived uh, at the, near the beginning of the 20th century. And I want to read this story to you. A striking modern parallel has been quoted more than once from the experiences of Sundar Singh. By order of the chief lama of a Tibetan community, he was thrown into a dry well, the cover of which was securely locked. This, this gentleman, again, is a was a missionary. Here he was left to die like many others before him, whose bones and rotting flesh lay at the bottom of the well. On the third night, when he had been calling to God in prayer, when he had been calling to God in prayer, he heard someone unlocking the cover of the well and removing it. Then a voice spoke, telling him to take hold of the rope that was being lowered. He did so and was glad to find a loop at the bottom of the rope in which he could place his foot, for his arm had been injured before he was thrown down. He was then drawn up. The cover was uh, replaced and locked. But when he looked around to thank his rescuer, he could find no trace of him. The fresh air revived him, and his injured arm felt whole again. When morning came, he returned to the place where he had been arrested and resumed preaching. News was brought to the chief lama that the man who had been thrown into the execution well had been liberated and was preaching again. Sundar Singh was brought before him and questioned and told the story of his release. The Lama declared that someone must have got a hold of the key and let him out. But when search was made for the key, it was found attached to the Lama's own girdle. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who delivered people in the Old Testament when they cried out to him. The same God who delivered people when they called out to him in the book of Acts is the same God that we serve today. Amen. He is not dead. This book was not written for us to read and learn about only. This book was written for us to live out. This book was written so that our faith might increase, that our love for one another out of our love from Christ might increase. The Bible says that the word of God is living and active. George Mueller said this about prayer. 
the greater the difficulty to be overcome, the more will, uh, the more it will be seen to the glory of God and how, and how much can be done by prayer and faith. I'm going to read that again. That was bad. The greater the difficulty to be overcome, the more it will be seen to the glory of God how much can be done by prayer and faith. And if you know anything about George Mueller, who lived in the 1800s, if anybody knows about prayer in the modern age, it was this man. This guy had documented over 10,000 answers to prayer. He had been used by God to feed and take care of 10,000 orphans from the streets of, of, uh, in England during the course of his life. In, when he was older, he, he traveled the world preaching the gospel in 42 countries. And surprisingly enough, um, th- this is the most amazing thing. Th- this gentleman um, was a, a criminal. He had nothing to, wanted nothing to do with God. God got a hold of his heart, got saved, came to the Lord, and he was walking around the streets of England and continued to encounter these orphans. And God just came upon his heart with compassion for these orphans. And he determined to take care of them, but he had not a penny to take care of them with. So over the course of his lifetime, 10,000 orphans and multiple millions of dollars later that it took to provide for the needs of these orphans and share the gospel with them and many of them getting saved time after time, this man did not ask for provision or beg anyone for help to take care of these orphans. He determined from day one, I'm going to depend on God and God only to help me provide for these orphans and show them the love of Christ. 10,000 orphans. Can you imagine? There are stories. You've got to read his biography if you hadn't. It's amazing. There's stories where they're literally out of food. And, and, and the orphans are sitting there, and they need food, and he has no food. And he's like, God, you are the one who put it on my heart to take care of these orphans. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no food. And he would stop, and he would pray, God, help us. And he'd hear a knock at the door. And a stranger would walk up to the door and say, God just told me, uh, you know, I'm a baker here in town and I made some bread and I got a basket of bread and God just told me to bring this bread to your house. And, that, and there, are, there are countless times of him recording cases like this where he needed money for an orphanage. He prayed for like six or nine months and God continued to bring people to him that would just give him money. They didn't even know of these people. He had no campaigns. He had no, you know, thermometers saying, let's, let's, let's get the, pull the money in for the, for the building. He just asked God. He said, God, I need help. I'm doing your work. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. If your words abide in me, you can ask what you wish and it will be done. Delight yourself in the Lord, the Psalms say, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As God's desires get into us, as we desire him more, he changes us. And then we find something that God is the one who's praying through us. His desires are are formed into us. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. He puts his mind in us. He puts his desires in us as we seek him. Paul said, for it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ lives in us. And he says, ask. As you go about the work of ministry, as you go about advancing the kingdom, you're my kids. 
What does God care more about than people getting saved, than people being loved? And he says, I, I, I'm not, I didn't say you were supposed to do this on your own. Ask. Ask, and you will receive. If you believe what you ha- have asked for, I think Mark chapter 11 says, you have what you've asked for, like past tense. Like believe that it's already happened, and it's going to happen. So after Peter realizes what has happened, um, he goes and he finds his friends. Verse 12 says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when she, or when he, sorry, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So, real quick, I want to stop. So, we can tell from this that Mary. Um, commentators say that she had a, a, probably a large house similar to the, the one that the high priest had um, with this outer courtyard. And so she got it, you know, provided for her, and she was using her home um, for prayer. She was using her home for the, for the work of ministry. Um, and this early church, they didn't have buildings, so they were distributed uh, among different homes. And so they were in her home praying. They're literally still praying. They're not giving up. They're being persistent. Um, if, you, if you have prayed um, for something um, and God hasn't answered it, um, it could be because he just, he's training us to be more persistent. Uh, you think of the story in Luke chapter 18 where the, pers- the, the persistent widow, she's just annoying this judge, this unjust judge, by the way, to death. And he's like, leave me alone enough already. All right, all right, I'm going to give you what you asked for. And, and Jesus paints this picture of like, if, if this unjust judge gives this woman what she wants, then will your heavenly Father not give you what you've asked for? Uh, if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. And so persistence is the picture there that he's painting. Um, and, and this is what the early church did. They persisted in prayer. They were earnestly praying for Peter. Um, they were, again, they were praying before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. This was the pattern of their lives. Because they, and the more they had seen God be faithful, the more they were, were filled with joy. I don't know about you, but when, the more I see answers to, to, to prayer, the more I'm excited to pray. The more I want to pray. The more I say, yes, God, your, your promises are true. And you are here to help me with what it is you want me to do. Now, obviously, um, we, we don't come to God with a heart of, of like he's our gene, a genie in a bottle. Um, James says, you don't have what you ask for sometimes because you want to spend it on your own passions, and your own desires. That's obviously not what this is about. That's, what not, that's not the purpose of prayer. We know that. Um, but there are, there, are, there are the weight of passages on prayer are Jesus saying, just ask. And you know, the worst that can happen is God doesn't answer it and he changes our heart in the process. Like I, 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 I sense sometimes, and I've grown up in the church, that there's this like, there's almost this fear that is instilled in us to pray, like, like, now be careful, you don't pray the wrong thing. And I'm like, that is absolutely true, but Jesus said, pray. And if you believe what you've asked for, you have it. So, so, God can take care of that. I don't need to police people and say, well, you know, be afraid. It's like, God, as a father, is perfect. He's going to take care of the change in our heart that needs to happen. He's just glad we're coming. 
If I come to God and I have ill motives, do you think he's not going to change those as I spend time in his presence? If I hang out with the one who's perfect, will I not become more and more like him? I'll never be perfect, but will I not be changed more into his image? Of course, and prayer is how we depend upon God. It's like my son. If my son uh, comes to me and he needs something, I'm like, I, it is my joy to help him. And it's the same for our father. So, so Peter here, uh, as these believers are praying, he comes and Rhoda comes to the door, recognizing Peter's voice, verse 14. In her joy, she didn't even open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you were out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. You're crazy, basically. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But, mo uh, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. So they were probably very excited and maybe firing questions at him, wondering, what happened, Peter? What's going on? Are you okay? Is it, are you real? Are you an angel? You know, what's going on? Um, and he's like, hey, calm down, calm down. I'm going to share with you what happened. Um, and he says, tell, so he shared with them what happened, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. It, it is so important that we remember and not forget all that God has done. It, it, is, it is very important because when I forget what God has done, my mind is filled with discouragement often, you know? I forget, of his, I forget his goodness. And if I'm not thinking about him, I'm thinking about something else. I'm relying upon myself instead of him. And so it is so important that we forget not all his benefits. Psalm 103 Verses 2 to 5 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So I, I started keeping a, a prayer journal off and on over the past uh, little over a year or so. Um, and I don't always record every prayer that I pray, but it has been so faith-building for me um, and encouraging to read back through that and to keep record of, of, of when I prayed something and, and what specifically I prayed for. And, and it's amazing, actually. I didn't even realize it how many times I will have answers to prayer almost before I'm done praying, if it's something small, or even same day or the next day. Um, and I, I just never recognized that until I actually wrote it down and looked at it. Um, but as I go through that, I, I'm reminded of the faithfulness of God. And Peter is, is here testifying of what God had just done through prayer. And so I think that that should be my practice. And so I've begun to do that. Um, when we testify of what God has done, what we are doing is we are drawing attention to him and to the necessity of depending on him. So when people hear what God has done in our life and in the lives of those around us, we are literally drawing attention to him. Um, we are saying, look what God did that I couldn't do. Look what through dependence on God he did through me or through someone around me. So that's what Peter's doing. He says, go. He didn't even hesitate. He didn't even, uh, he didn't even wait. He, he said, go and tell the brothers, James and the brothers, what has happened. Now, just to clarify, James, he references here, this is a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. 
James, the brother of John, obviously had been executed, as we saw uh, at the beginning of chapter 12. So this is a different James, uh, lest you be uh, confused about what's, what's going on there. So, um, so in verse 18 through 23, uh, and I got to hurry up here, running out of time. Um, now, when day came, there was no little disturbance. That's funny. Like they were freaked out and there was a lot of turmoil among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, so they didn't even know where he was, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Caesarea is by the sea. He went over there. Um, and it's interesting that Herod's just so angry that he just ends up just putting to death these uh, prisoners. Again, no regard for anyone's life but his own. Um, and it's really interesting uh, actually, I'm going to share that in, in a minute. I'll just keep reading. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which was also a coastal city about 60 miles north of Caesarea. So it's nearby to where Herod had just uh, arrived at there. Um, and I've been to Caesarea. Um, there, are, there are outdoor Roman amphitheaters still to this day. Um, so, so Herod may have been at one of these amphitheaters speaking. It says, um, or I don't even know if it says where he was. I'm trying to think here. Yeah, it may have been in his palace. Who, who knows? Um, now, Herod was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So Tyre and Sidon, they're angry with, or, or, or Herod was angry with them, they come to him dependent on Herod for food, right? And so they do what they need to do. They probably paid off his chamberlain here. Don't know, it doesn't say, but somehow they, they got an audience with Herod. And it says that he, he went and he spoke to them, potentially convincing them that, hey, you know what? I'm going to take care of this. Um, just almost like having them under his thumb was the sense here. And it said he put on his royal robes. Um, the historian Josephus says that these robes, they were, they were like silver, right? They were, they were made out of silver, and, and the sun was shining, they said, this, on this day, and it was just shining, almost glowing like an angel. So he looked amazing, and he was speaking these great words, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So Josephus tells us that in, in this moment, he, was, he this, had this pain in his, in, his, uh, in his stomach. And they say that like about five days later, he died of some intestinal worms. Um, so it's, it's really amazing that we have that historical account um, to look to what happened here. Um, so so <laughs> as we see here, all the enemies of God are inevitably going to fail. You can't stand against God. Um, and it's interesting because Psalm 7, verses 15 to 16 says, speaking of the evil person, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So what Herod was trying to kill people, he ends up dying himself. It just came back on his head. Um, and I want you to note really quick here that the stark contrast between Herod's you know, really narcissistic self-reliance um, and the sacrificial love of the believers 
and their God dependence that they exhibit in this passage. So we see, uh, just to review in this passage, that the Christians were empowered by God, these believers, to spread the gospel, whereas Herod exercised his power to try to crush the gospel. The Christians sacrificially helped each other when they were in need. Herod selfishly used a famine to extort people. The Christians depended on God for their help. Herod loved that people were depending on him for help. The Christians promoted God with their words, with their works, with their love. Herod promoted himself with his words and his appearance. And finally, the Christians played a role in setting Peter free, whereas Herod oppressed and imprisoned people. And the ironic thing here is that even though Peter was physically imprisoned, he was free. And even though Herod was in a palace, free to move about, he was the one that was in prison. And even though it looked like the enemy had won, God always wins. So after Herod had been removed from power permanently, we see God's plans continuing. Verse 24 and 25, But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So the story just continues. I mean, there's a bump in the road, right? There's opposition, but God's kingdom, God's word, God's love continues to expand. Despite Herod's persecution and even death of Stephen and James, God's word continued to increase and multiply. You know what? It didn't matter who lived or died, Christian or unbeliever, it didn't matter. Stephen was persecuted. It caused the church to be scattered and God's kingdom to grow. James was, was killed. The church prayed. Peter could have been executed, but he was, he was saved. What happened? God's kingdom expanded. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter what man does to stop God. God and his plans will continue forward regardless. There is such peace in that. Individually, for you and for me, collectively, as a church, his plans will continue even if it doesn't look like it sometimes, even if it's dark and it feels like we're in prison. We're not because he set us free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The word increase here means to flourish like a plant. The word of God increased. And I get this picture. Have you ever, have you ever seen a, the foundation of a house or, or a sidewalk that's planted next to a big tree? Over time, what happens to the concrete? It just breaks. It can't withstand that new life, that growth that comes forth from that plant, from that tree. And this is a picture where the, the, the dead ways of self, the dead, uh, deadly attack of the enemy, God's life, God's plan, his strong arm came in and his gospel's bringing life to people and it just broke that stuff down. It didn't matter and it multiplied. That was always God's intent from the beginning. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And this is what's happening in the book of Acts. Is God and his glory is filling the earth. As more people get saved, as we are formed more into his image, 
his glory spreads through the earth. As we love like Jesus, Jesus is seen in our lives. So in closing, like I did for my son with the trash can, God welcomes us to come to him and move or remove what we can't move, to do what we can't do, to carry what we were never intended to carry. We give, us, we give him our garbage. <laughs> he gives us his righteousness. We get him in exchange for all, the, all that we bring him, which is just filthy rags. God's word continued to increase, so I want to close with just reading from God's word. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, it says, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke were for oxen. Oxen would pull a load together side by side. We were never intended to pull anything God puts in front of us on our own. We were never intended to remove things that are in front of us. I think of the story of Joshua. Did God put the River Jordan there that stood between Joshua and the Promised Land? Yeah, he allowed that river to be there. And yet Joshua trusted that God would somehow make a way to get them across this River Jordan that was 10 to 30 feet wide um, and, and like up to 3 to 10 feet deep. And we're talking maybe a million people having to cross this. It was not going to happen. No bridges, nothing. And God said to Joshua, I am going to give you this land. Don't be afraid. But it's interesting because God never gave Joshua a war plan or a battle strategy. Have you ever noticed that? He just said, don't be afraid because I'm going to be with you. And as Joshua walked in what God had put before him, as, God, as, as Joshua trusted and believed that the promise of God would come to pass, God gave Joshua the wisdom and insight as he walked day by day. And God gives us that. He doesn't reveal to us too much as far as what's going to happen in the future in our individual lives. But he says, I'm going to be with you. So as we go this week, as we go this day, we re remember and press into the reality that God is our strategy. God was Joshua's strategy. God was Abraham's strategy. When God said to go to a place he didn't know about, Abraham didn't know what was going to happen. God said, go, and he went. These believers, they didn't have a strategy. Nothing wrong with strategies, by the way, unless I get a tomato thrown at me. But we come to God, and he figures it out from there. And I'm so thankful that when we come to him, that he, we find rest. We can stop trying to figure it out on our own. Because his yoke is easy. It's easy. If it's not easy, it's not him. And that sounds crazy, but his commandments are not burdensome. The commandments I put on myself sometimes, yeah, those are burdensome every time. I'm telling myself I need to do this or that, that's burdensome. When God says to do something and he speaks to my heart and he promises to be with me, it's not burdensome, it's easy. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, for what you have done for us. Thank you that you have made a way. As we take communion together, Father, I just I ask that you would remind us that this is the ultimate picture of dependence on you. To know that we could never reach up to you, so you came down to us. We could never cleanse ourselves of our sins. We could never make things right between you and us. But you made things right so that we could come to you. And you did it because you love us. And so as we take communion together, God, I just ask that you would remind us of your love for us. We love you because you first loved us. Amen.